So this is the seventh installment in our elder-led sermon series on 1 Peter. And for anyone that doesn't know me, my name is Tom Allworth, and I am privileged to serve as an elder here. And I'm even more privileged to have this opportunity to preach God's word from 1 Peter 4. If you haven't already, go ahead and find 1 Peter 4 in your Bible. A young person recently gave me some very helpful advice about preaching. They told me, try not to use too many big words, and try not to be boring. (laughs) This is excellent advice. I'll try on both counts. Peter, in this letter, is often turning his reader's attention to the future and to the greatness of God. In this letter, he reminds us of God's ability to make dead things alive in making us born again. And of our inheritance in heaven that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He reminds us of God's power that guards us. And of our hope in God's future grace when Jesus returns. He reminds us of God's knowledge of all things, past, present, and future. And that what God says sticks for all eternity. That the word of the Lord remains forever. He reminds us that we are chosen by God and precious to him, a people that once were rebels and now are his own people. He reminds us to fear God and to be mindful of God, that God is holy and judges justly. Peter is constantly drawing our attention to the greatness of God, to the character of God, and to the future that awaits us. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, makes this statement. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, who we believe God to be, what we think he is like, how we believe that he acts in our day and age, these things will impact every part of our lives, shape our attitudes, and in fact, define who we are. In our passage in 1 Peter 4 this morning, we'll see that Peter is once again circling back through a number of themes that he's already talked about in the first three chapters. Suffering, how we think, our desires, the will of God, how to live in the world, and how to live among believers. In the background of this passage, and in fact all of 1 Peter, is a big God, a capable God, one that we can trust with all manner of events that we face in our lives. So as we examine this passage before us, I encourage you to also examine your own heart and whether you have a big, awesome, present God or a small, distant God. Our first point this morning is this. Christ is our example in obedient suffering. Join me in verse 1. Peter writes, Since therefore... Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The since, therefore, at the beginning of this verse, is really quite an odd phrase in English. I don't use that to start sentences. Do you? Some translations flip these words around, so it's therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, which honestly I find more helpful in understanding that Peter is tying 
this phrase both backwards to what he was saying in chapter 3 and forwards to what he is about to say. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, therefore, along with his referring again to Christ's suffering, it calls us back to chapter 3 and this train of thought, specifically chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ suffered also, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered unjustly in his life on earth, most specifically in dying on the cross to pay the penalty for the unrighteous. That's you and me. So picking back up on this theme of Christ's unjust suffering, Peter is tying this to his instructions for us that come next. Arm yourselves. These are words of war, of battle. This is the response that Peter is expecting from his readers. Arm yourselves with the same weapon that Jesus had, the same defenses that Jesus had, the same readiness for battle, namely, the same way of thinking that Jesus had as he suffered unjustly. We have to take a long pause and ask ourselves, what way of thinking did Jesus have? What way of looking at the events of his life strengthened him and set his resolve to suffer? Because that is our weapon. That is what we arm ourselves with. That is the way of thinking that is key. So we need to know what it is. And Peter, I tell you what, he's a good guy. Thankfully, Peter doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't send us on a wild goose chase through the Bible trying to find out what is he talking about. No, he's a good guy. He's already told us, in fact, in chapter 2, the way of thinking that Jesus had. Let's take a look at it, starting in verse 21. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Yes, there it is. His ongoing trust in his father was the key. That was his mindset, his way of thinking. God is big, bigger than this present moment. He can see things that you and I can't see. He has plans that you and I don't know about. He can make things happen in ways that you and I can't imagine and would never expect. But we also see right before that that Jesus committed no sin. Given the choice between suffering and sinning, Jesus chose suffering every time. Obedience to his Father was more important than avoiding pain. In fact, it was the most important thing. 1 John 5.3 is very straightforward about this. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. No Greek lessons required to interpret this. Jesus loved his father perfectly and demonstrated this by obeying him perfectly, even when it was painful. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. But why is this so hard for us? It's really cut and dry. Why is obeying God so difficult at times, especially when facing unjust treatment? Well, Peter says it's a trust issue. After all, Jesus' trust in his heavenly Father 
is what enabled him to suffer injustice. I have trust issues. Do you have trust issues? I first came across the idea of future grace a few years ago in a book by Ed Welch. It was in relation to fighting anxiety, which I have fought over the years more often than I'd like. I think it's very applicable to suffering as well, though, since both are trust issues. He's given this, he gives this example to illustrate the idea of future grace. Imagine you're taking a class, and the first thing the instructor does is hand out a test. You scan it, and you know nothing. There are these little symbols that you have no idea what they mean. There are these words you can't even pronounce or know what they mean. And your anxiety level rises with each question you read, each page that you flip through. You got nothing. Then the teacher interrupts. Oh, did I tell you that this will be your final exam? You don't have to take this now. And you don't know any of it now. But trust me, by the time the class is over, you will actually know this. You'd be amazed at how well prepared you will be. And everyone in the class sighs in relief. Nothing has really changed. There will be a final exam at the end of the course. And you would fail it if you took it now. But you have no worries now. When the time comes to take the test, you will have received the grace that you need to do well. You trust the future grace of your teacher. Do we trust the future grace of our God? Do we trust that if we have to suffer for being obedient, God will provide the grace we need when we need it? And that justice will be done in the end? Do we believe that God is able to do beyond all that we ask or imagine, including making us able to suffer graciously for doing nothing wrong because we identify with his son, Jesus? Chapter 219, for this is a gracious thing, Peter says, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. I need God's grace to even trust in his future grace toward me. I have trust issues. Maybe you do too. But being honest, the other thing that's really so bothersome about all this talk about suffering is that we instinctively know that it isn't right. It's not what we were made for. And we're right to be bothered by this. We're right to think that. Our bodies and minds are trained to avoid pain. We pull our hand away from the stove. We stop running when the side ache starts. We avoid that person that treats us like dirt. More importantly than those examples, though, we see from God's word that we weren't made for suffering. Suffering wasn't a part of life in the garden for Adam and Eve before the fall. And it won't be a part of life in heaven where there will be no crying and no pain. It's not how it should be. Suffering comes with sin, though. Not just suffering because we sin and have to endure the consequences or other people sin and we have to endure the consequences of their actions. It's just because it's the fallen world we live in. We sometimes have to face the choice between, on the one hand, obedience to God and whatever suffering might come with it, and on the other hand, following our own desires and, well, there's the problem. You see, we don't often see the immediate consequences of following our own desires, of choosing comfort over obedience. It's that trust issue again, but it's from a different direction. I 
too often don't really trust God when he says that sin destroys everything. Do you trust him in that? Jesus could see the destruction of sin more clearly than anyone ever before him. Jesus hated sin, hated what it had done to Adam and Eve and the rest of humanity and creation after them. Jesus chose to obey God at every opportunity because the alternative to disobey his father would break his relationship with his perfect father, relationship more precious to him than even his own life. Can we see sin the same way? Can we see that suffering unjustly is not the worst thing in this life? Can we see that sin is the worst thing in this life? It's the greatest evil. Arm yourselves with that way of thinking. Sin is the thing to stay farthest away from. Trusting the God of the universe who judges justly is the key to that. So what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We need our view of God to be bigger than our suffering, bigger than our comfort, bigger than everything. In order for our thinking about suffering to be different than what comes naturally to us, for it to be transformed, we are, after all, clay vessels. And a high view of God, even when we have it, is constantly leaking out of the cracks in our brokenness. If our thinking is not constantly transformed by a right view of God, and in fact by God himself, our living will not be in obedience to God. So this brings us to the second half of verse 1. Ten and a half more to go. (laughs) You all packed lunches, right? (laughs) Nah, I'm kidding. Lunch and dinner? Let's continue in verse 1. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This isn't talking about some kind of purification by pain, like whoever suffers for any reason will no longer sin at all. Rather, Peter's pointing out that when presented with the choice between obeying God and suffering on the one hand, or sin with comfort on the other, the believer that chooses obedience to God has made a clear break with sin. They've acted in a way that shows that obeying God, not obeying hardship, is the most important motivation. And this kind of obedience has a moral strengthening effect on our lives. When looking at the life of Jesus as our example, we have to acknowledge that obeying God perfectly, as no one else in all of history ever did, It didn't result in freedom from pain for him. It didn't result in health, wealth, and prosperity in his life. In fact, Hebrews 5.8 tells us that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. This is a completely astounding verse. And honestly, I didn't really understand it fully until this passage in 1 Peter 4. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, not in the way... A disobedient child needs to learn to obey, though. Consider this. Before his incarnation, Jesus never faced the human temptation to avoid pain by choosing disobedience. He never faced that choice. But then, Jesus, as a boy, as a teenager, and as a man, 
He faced this temptation as much as we do. And he chose obedience and its consequences every time. Jesus' high view of his father enabled him to trust him. The whole point of our obedient suffering, Peter tells us in verse 2, is to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. God's will for us. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 tells us that the will of God is our sanctification, leaving behind our lives of sin and rebellion against God and becoming holy, just as God is holy. That sounds familiar. Peter's already told us earlier in this letter that the will of God is for us to do good also. And this brings us to our second point. Leave behind your past and look to the end. Verse 3 gives a reason to no longer live for human passions, and it's this. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter is telling his readers bluntly that their past experience of sin, of being driven by their human passions, it's enough. It's sufficient. They should not want to live any longer driven by their sinful human passions. If you've ever wondered whether at some point in the future you might just one more time have an opportunity for one more more time of unrestrained sin, one more doing as the Gentiles do, Peter's answer is clear. Nope. No more. Enough of living that way. He gives a vice list here of things that Gentiles want to do, which focuses on the combination of sexual sin, drinking, and partying, which were rather common in Peter's day, just as they are in our day. Peter goes on to point out that though, that though living that way used to be a part of the normal life for the Christians that he writes to, their neighbors, in verse 4, are surprised when they don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, he says. And they malign you. They speak evil of you, slander, verbal abuse. Peter's readers lived in a world where they no longer fit in with their society. Does that sound kind of familiar to our day? Some of you have left behind lives like what Peter describes, and others haven't lived like that. But regardless, this is still where the rubber meets the road. Very few, if any here, have experienced physical persecution for identifying with Christ. Some of you have faced verbal attacks for identifying with Christ. And many more here will face verbal attacks in the future for identifying with Christ. It's the way that things are going in our world. So listen up, young people. Yep, that's you. Listen up. Holding to the authority of the Bible and expressing a personal commitment to Christ will not make you popular today, or very likely even for the rest of your life. Proclaiming that there are some specific things in this life that are true, that are right and wrong, that cannot be changed, is more likely to help you lose a job than to get one. 
Test now. I encourage you. Test now whether your faith can hold up to such criticism, to other viewpoints, to even your own questions and doubts. Christianity is not a blind faith backed by nothing but nice thoughts. It is not filled with unsatisfyingly simple answers to hard questions. It can hold up to the deepest scrutiny and the harshest critics. So test that now. Now listen up, you less than younger people. I'm speaking to myself here because I need to hear this as much as anyone. If we don't demonstrate to the next generation, to our kids, to the young people that we encounter, that the fear of God is present in our lives, and God is changing us from the inside, and that being maligned for aligning with Christ is not the worst thing in this world, if we don't demonstrate that, we'll pass on to the next generation a view of God that is small and out of touch with reality and a faith that is devoid of power. They're surprised when you don't join them and they malign you. But, verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Don't be surprised and don't let this derail you. You have a just God who sees what is going on. He knows. In fact, he knows these people. And you have a God who is just. A righteous judge of the universe who will hold everyone accountable, the living and the dead. There's no escaping God's judgment. No third option. But hopefully... These people will turn from their ways and find the mercy of God. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This absolutely is not talking about the gospel being preached to those who already are dead. It's not as if people get another chance after they repent. And there's two reasons. Not only does it not fit in the context and the flow of thought in the passage, but as Ryan pointed out last week, this way of thinking doesn't square with the rest of Scripture. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, Hebrews 9.27. Judgment in in the flesh is referring to death in this life. And everyone dies. Verse 6 does not say that the gospel is preached to those who are dead. And that's important. It says the gospel was preached to those who are dead. You know, as in back when they were alive. That's when it was preached to them. And why was it preached? It's so that whoever believes the gospel may be made alive in the spirit. It's the whole reason the gospel is preached, because otherwise all we have is death. The gospel is effective in making us spiritually alive so that death on this earth is not the end. Peter has the end in mind, and it's not physical death here. It's eternity in heaven, fully alive with the God of the universe who has chosen us. We are precious. And what is this gospel? Tim Keller puts it this way. The gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves 
than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The problem is really so much worse than we think before a holy God and a just God who does not let sin go unpunished. We would not consider a judge in our judicial system just if he let murderers go unpunished. Yet God's word describes us as murderers in our heart if we are angry at our brother. Ouch. Rather than unjustly giving us a pass, he mercifully pays the penalty for us. This is not unfamiliar. Chapter 318, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There may be some of you today that haven't acknowledged your sinfulness before God or put your trust in Jesus as Savior and King. Today, if you're ready to be done with striving to satisfy your own desires, come and trust the God of the universe who loves you in Jesus Christ more than you ever dared hope. If that's you this morning and you want to know more about what all that means, I encourage you to come up after the service and talk. There are others of you here that I know have put your trust in Jesus, and I'm glad for that. And the gospel is still for you each day. Preach the gospel to yourself. You are not perfect yet. Surprise. At times, like me, you have anxieties and fears, angry outbursts, judgmental thoughts, and the list goes on. God's will for you and me is sanctification, to make you and me into his likeness so that we can enjoy him not only in eternity, but in this life too. This brings us to the last four verses of our passage this morning. Write this down as point number three. Jesus is coming back, so pray. Verse seven, the end of all things is at hand, therefore Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter again draws our attention forward to the end and to God's redemptive history. The end of all things is at hand. All the key events of God's redemption plan, the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they've already happened, and they've ushered in the last days. The next thing is Jesus coming back. No one knows the hour that Jesus will return, so live this way. Pray. What will enable us to pray in the last days? Peter tells us, be self-controlled and sober-minded. These two words, self-controlled and sober-minded, they're nearly synonymous, and both are in contrast to the kind of living Peter has already described in verse 3, drunkenness, sensuality, and the like. The word for self-controlled, in fact, can also be translated sane. Having a sound mind, thinking and evaluating situations maturely and correctly. Sober-minded, as George Bennett put it a few weeks ago, is to not be under the influence of destructive thoughts or false hopes. Wayne Grudem makes this point in regard to these verses about our thinking. Peter knows how easily Christians can lose their spiritual concentration through mental intoxication with things of the world. 
We today might well consider the dangers presented by such inherently good things as career, possessions, recreation, reputation, friendships, scholarship, or authority. Where is my hope today? Where is your hope today? Is it in success at work? Success in my parenting? Is it in a fun vacation or a stress-free weekend? Or is it just in getting my to-do list done? Where is my hope today? And where is your hope? Is it in the living God? The end of all things is at hand. So pray, based on clear thinking. Let what you know about God's character, his awesome power, and perfect justice, his holiness, mercy, and love, let that inform your prayers. Let what you know about the world around you, the lostness of your neighbors, the emptiness of the pleasures it provides, let that inform your prayers. Let what you know about Jesus coming back and that it's going to be any time, let that inform your prayers with a sense of urgency. Let right, clear thinking drive you to pray for God to act in the time that remains. For any good that occurs in the world is due to God's grace. Write this down as point number four. Jesus is coming back, so love and serve one another. Verse eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the signs of the ends of the times, one of which is that the love of many will grow cold. So in talking about the end of all things, Peter brings up the most important instruction to love one another earnestly. Love here in the Greek is agape. It's unconditional love. And the Greek word for earnestly here, when taken literally, means to stretch out or to strain. Makes me think of love that sticks its neck out for another. Love earnestly. Don't let your love toward others grow cold. Why? Thanks, Peter. You already answered it. Because love covers a multitude of sins. This harkens back to Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Now, Peter isn't exactly quoting the Old Testament texts, which he does elsewhere in 1 Peter, so it's not like he doesn't know. So this phrase, love covers a multitude of sins, was likely a common saying in his day. What does it mean to cover sins? The structure of Proverbs 10, 12 can help us understand what Peter means by cover here. Hatred is contrasted with love, and stirs up strife is contrasted with covers all offenses. Stirring up strife, it's taking a small conflict and making it bigger. Not letting any little thing go, pouring fuel on the fire of a conflict, doing that thing that you know bothers that person just to see the reaction. This is strife stirring. Covering all offenses, then, is actions that promote unity, 
actions that avoid or overcome behaviors that can destroy relationships. Actions that are meant to bring peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peter isn't making a statement here about sins being forgiven by God or that sin in the church should be covered up. Certainly that is not the case. The church is the place where deeds of darkness are to be exposed in the light. Rather, Peter is saying that where sacrificial love abounds among Christians, small offenses, and even some large ones, can be overlooked, forgiven. It is to man's glory to overlook an offense, Proverbs tells us. This love that Peter is talking about isn't warm and fuzzy love, like we like to think of it often. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. It's an act of the will. It's not saying that what was done wasn't wrong, in fact. It's entrusting ourselves to our just God who will make all things right in the end. It is trusting that God will take care of me as I spend myself for the good of others and as I don't respond in kind for being wronged. But I can't always see that God will take care of me like that. And I can't always see what form his future grace will come in. Surely I'm not the only one. When I was in fifth grade, my science teacher, Mr. Morrissey, he got some mallard duck eggs from a friend. His friend was from the DNR. And he got some, he said that if we got our parents' permission, we could take home one of these ducklings as a pet after we hatched them in class. So I was all excited, and I went home, and somehow I convinced my parents this was a good idea, that I would actually take care of this duck. And so that's what happened. It hatched, I took it home, I named it Cruz, because I thought it was fast for a duck when it would run around. I'd put it in the bathtub, or later on as it grew, in a kiddie pool, and I would watch it swim underwater like it was flying. And I was just amazed by this. I loved this duck. Whenever it popped back up out of the water, now I don't know if you know this about ducks, but they're not like sponges. They don't just soak up water like a wet dog or a wet cat. My duck cruise would pop back up from under the water, and it was like he hadn't been underwater. The water just rolls off his back. A number of years ago, I gave this word picture to my boys in dealing with small things. Try to be like a duck. Try to be ducky. You don't have to react to every little thing that your brother just said or did. You can just let it go, like water off a duck's back. How well did they take this word picture to heart? Well, you could ask them, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's similar to how I take it to heart, a bit half-heartedly at times. The reality is I can be much more like a wet dog than a duck some days. There are days when I'm easily offended, when I let irritations over small things get the better of me, and I make a wet dog kind of mess in my family. As Christians, the local church is our family. Both inside our homes and inside our church, we can't act like wet dogs, or it gets stinky real fast. And when we do act like that, let's return to this verse. 
Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Go to your kids, or brother, or sister, or spouse, or fellow Christ follower, or neighbor, or co-worker, and admit that you've done wrong, and admit what you've done wrong, and ask for forgiveness, and seek to repair the relational damage that's been done. In contrast, when the people around you don't believe that you have their good in mind, or when the people around you don't believe that you want to see them thrive, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts are many. So love earnestly, because love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is a practical outworking of our earnest love for one another. Peter may have been referring to hosting a church meeting in a, in a home in the early church, or inviting traveling believers in and giving them a place to stay, or perhaps being a safe place for neighbors and friends who are facing pressure for aligning with Christ. Regardless of specifically what kind of hospitality Peter had in mind, this quality of open-heartedness toward other believers, even in the absence of warm feelings, without complaining, even when it's inconvenient, this marks Christ followers. A few years ago, I stayed with a Christian family, one that a friend knew well, but I'd never met them. I was struck by how openly they welcomed me into their home, how interested they were in me, how they wanted to make sure all my needs were taken care of from the minute I got there. My plans changed over the course of that trip due to an injury, and I ended up spending a lot more time with them. I was around the house much more than they had planned, and in fact, times when they hadn't planned on me being there. They made sure that I had what I needed, but even more than that, they treated me like a part of the family. I honestly never felt like I was a burden to them. Rather, I felt that they enjoyed having me there. It was eye-opening. It was a view of Christian hospitality toward a stranger that I had just never personally experienced before, and I was richly blessed by it. So reality is, you may not have the ability to open your home for overnight guests like that family did for me, but what could open-hearted hospitality look like in your home? It doesn't require a big, beautiful home. It requires a big heart, open to what God can do through you to bless others. Who can you invite into your home this week or this month? Maybe share a meal, show a deep interest in, encourage them, and perhaps meet some practical needs. This is one way that we can show love to each other within the church. Now, join me in verse 10. As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Earnest love for one another will find expression not only in hospitality, but in serving one another with the gift God has given each of his children. 
Note a few really important things about these verses. First, each follower of Christ has received at least one spiritual gift. This is also attested to in 1 Corinthians 12. It's a gift. You don't earn gifts. You don't get to choose the gift that you receive. So we don't brag and boast about whatever gift God has given. Second, these gifts are not for our own advancement. They're not to draw attention to ourselves. They are for the good of others. Use it to serve one another, Peter says. Think about this. God gives you a gift for the good of someone else. I remember when I grasped this for the first time. My gift is not for my good, but for the good of the church. Your gift, whatever it is, is not for you, ultimately. It's for building up the church and to display God's glory. It is God's varied grace to everyone else through you. This might seem like God is being a really lame gift giver, like God is giving a vacuum cleaner or a weed eater, something you don't really want. But let's not take it that way. It's actually a really beautiful thing that God ties his church together in this way. We need each other. Here's the thing. This might come as a complete shock, but I'm not Jesus. And neither are you. And that's why we need each other. All of us needs God's grace. I'm just me. I'm limited. I have blind spots and brokenness. I don't perfectly love God. I need to experience God's grace to me through you. God has given you gifts of hospitality, generosity, of speaking wisdom, of faith, discernment, teaching, and on the list goes so that you can bless someone else, that God's grace through you can change the life of someone else. Peter mentions two broad categories of spiritual gifts, speaking gifts and doing gifts, along with some instructions. So if you have a speaking gift of any kind, caution. Don't take it lightly. Don't think it's your own wisdom that will help people. Be careful to speak God's words, the oracles of God, and be faithful to the gospel. If you have a doing gift, expect to need God's strength to accomplish his work. With both speaking and doing, you and I just don't have what it takes. We don't have the understanding and wisdom or the strength to do what God asks. So he gives us the gift, and then he gives us what it takes to use the gift. So that in everything, God may be glorified. He's the giver of the gifts. That God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever. And so we've ended where we started, God being lifted up, magnified, elevated. He is God. He is the Lord, King of kings, creator of the universe in all of its unimaginable complexity and expansiveness. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. This view of God is what we need 
to follow Christ's example of obedient suffering. This is what we need to leave behind our past and look to the future. This is what we need to remember that Christ is coming back and to pray and love and serve with urgency. Let me leave you with two practical ways to elevate God in your heart. First, read God's word and preach the gospel to yourself along the way. As as God's word points out who God is and who you are, make a practice of reminding yourself of God's love and concern for you. And second, humble yourself before God. You're not in charge. Worship. Make time to be still and know that he is God. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are holy. To you belong all glory. Your reign and rule will have no end. Forgive us when we lose sight of this, when we make ourselves big in our own eyes and make you small. Help us to trust you with all that we are, all of our plans, all of our desires, all of our relationships. You are worthy of our worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.